earlier I planted a flag about the free will question uh, because so I I don't necessarily believe in free will. I think whenever I was falling out of religion, I kind of fell hard into like, I mean, I feel like everyone who falls out of Christianity runs to like the Richard Dawkins and the Sam Harris and yeah. uh, Chris Hitchens. And while I found that all of them were very sensible, I disagreed with Dawkins and uh, Hitchens's smugness uh, yeah. <laughs> and Sam Harris's pragmatism was something that always stuck with me that he's just like this logical robot and mm. everything like must make sense. And so being a, uh, I guess I could call myself jokingly a like Sam Harris zealot. Uh, I think mm. that his discussion of free will that uh, I think I, I find it most whenever I meditate. And it's mm -hmm. that whenever you are in this state of mindfulness and you can see and feel the thoughts come in yeah. with, with no control or anything of yourself or you're not producing the thoughts yourself there. They just happen to you. I mm. think that has been like the most personal proof to me that like free will is an illusion and that not to say that we don't make choices, but that the thought, the thoughts that arise in our head are, we're just kind of subject to what the mind produces yeah. and what determines who we are is how we react to the thoughts and how we decide to take action or not depending on what the thought is. And so I, I think it's interesting, especially with you being so familiar with hypnosis and sort of you've seen how, malleable the mind is and so i found your perspective that like free will still being there uh was interesting being so well acquainted with just how malleable and suggestible mm -hmm. and how thoughts arise and all of that in in the mind so i guess what it, what are your thoughts <laughs> yeah i think that our human consciousness and our our understanding of the world is so shaped by our society or by the time that we live in mm -hmm. and i think because of that because of the the information we're constantly getting whether from the media or from i don't know our our own life our our home our the reactions that other people have to our actions we're constantly learning and i think that those constraints set up set up those thoughts to happen, those thoughts that seem to happen to us. I think that the choices that arise to us, they are a lot more limited. They're, they're not like you don't have every single choice in the world, partially because you don't think of it, partially because uh, you're, you're trained to not think of it. If every single person you've ever seen in your life 
has worked a nine to five and has hated their job and <laughs> I don't know, has drank heavily, that's probably what you're going to follow. And in that case, like free will, I, I personally believe like you can still choose to it to uh, go out of that, that path. But if that's all you ever really know, you don't really have many options, it seems. And that's what I think is so critical about expanding your schema, your base of knowledge by learning other people's stories, you learn what is possible and you start to question what is possible. But I, I do agree with you that the, um, I think the, the choices that we have, they are so heavily influenced by our, excuse me, by our society, by our, the time that we live in, in my own, in my own story. What, before I really started living an adventurous life, so before I first hiked a mountain or uh, climbed, climbed anything, I, I thought that I, I had to work a nine to five and I had to be miserable at it because <laughs> that's literally all I'd ever seen. And that's what the media fed me. That's what my family was showing me. And so my options were very limited. And I, I think that free will does exist because... In my own life, if I hadn't had that one random thought that said, go way over there, move across the country to Maine and work the seasonal <laughs> job, I would have still had that. And I didn't really have any, um, I didn't really have any signpost or I should say mentor that said you should do this or example, it seemed at that point. It was something that that seemed to come out of nowhere. I'm sure it was triggered by something that I watched or something that I read once and that mind, that seed was planted in my thoughts. But again, um, it's all about just expanding our options and then having the free will to choose between those options. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, I have this radical notion in a way that we should design systems like political systems and uh, social media or, or everything, regardless of if anyone is decided on whether or not we have free will, we should design systems in a way as though we don't. Huh? <laughs> and what, yeah. what that would produce is I always use the, the example of social media of like, since there are emergent properties and systems, whenever like Facebook, the algorithm is like, oh, you interact with this thing. We're going to show you something similar to that. And the <laughs> emergent property that happens is that people tend to gravitate towards extremes. And that's yeah. just something about like human psychology that like we continue to exacerbate those things because they're compelling to us. And when the algorithm feeds into that feedback loop, it just keeps pulling us outwards towards the poles. And so that polarity being exacerbated by the algorithm, we should look at the algorithm and go, we, while people do have the choice, quote unquote, mm -hmm. to, maybe not click on something that seems compelling or seems divisive or some conspiracy theory or something. We should design the algorithm as though people will always do the thing that the evidence seems to tell us that humans tend towards. And yeah. 
I feel like we could do this with every other system and tend to like encourage positive behavior instead of negative behavior. But I think that kind of extends to like the greater problem of society, which is like we we tend to encourage certain behaviors because they give financial reward. <laughs> and so yeah. whenever the the success metric is money, the benefit of humanity is not necessary in yeah. the calculus. <laughs> mm. uh, what are your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, I think that brings it back to that idea of human beings. Are they evil or uh, what's this idea of God? I think in relation to that question, human beings being neutral, like human beings, we're all looking out for ourselves. Like even, even when we are altruistic and we are looking for the people that we love and um, doing all these things, there's no single person that gives every single piece of themselves away. If they do that, they're, they're going to burn out or perhaps they're going to, they're, they're going to die. They're going to run into a burning building to save someone and they're going to perish or something. I, my, the question that arose when you were talking about that, about the building these systems, was who's going to build it? <laughs> who's going to be that objective, good person or, or influence in our life that builds this system? And, and maybe that's where the, the whole idea of God came about. Like this, mm. this person who is clearly good and he's going to take care of us or she's going to take care of us. And as long as we put our trust in that person, like, we're going to be all right. That's that's where my mind went. Yeah. Well, kind of ever since uh, I always kind of use Nisha as this like turning point of like, you know, the, the God is dead and we've killed him. And so we have to f deal with the repercussions of now we don't have a, a supreme idea deity that is pushing us in whatever direction. And now we are the ones who have to decide what is good or what is bad. And kind of what you said is make our own meaning. And so I kind of look forward as a form of like, yeah, we're not gods, but like we are God. We are the ones that create our own meaning. And so we kind of have to use the scientific method and just like we just try our best each time and we figure out what doesn't work and what does work. And we can see this already in um, sort of like soft AIs and algorithms mm -hmm. that are sort of self-updating. And you can train a an algorithm to gravitate towards sorts towards certain things and it can learn what works and what doesn't work and in a way like humanity in in this state has already kind of been that algorithm we've sort of turned everything into this like maximizer especially in america uh yeah. we are this sort of maximizing machine but it it always skews towards maximizing capital. Uh, but we can always turn that and sort of maximize good or maximize whatever in this sort of trial and error phase algorithm, whatever it might be, that we can go, well, what is what is the goal? And 
how might we reach it? And maybe right away we don't know how to reach that goal, but finding the the route is kind of just that trial and error phase of just yeah. like, okay, well, we want people to be less racist on social media. <laughs> what what yeah. are the things that people click on that make them less racist and how do we uh, encourage that? Well, we have a control and then we have a dependent variable and mm-hmm. an independent variable and we can tweak those things and we can run these experiments live and figure out which way. And so it's like, while we are gods, quote unquote, it's it's mm-hmm. more like we're the uh, divine watchmaker god rather than the yeah. uh, supreme overlord god. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that kind of ties into uh, you had brought up like going to space and stuff like that. And And I always think about like I don't think we're going to get off this rock until we deal with – our shit here. (laughs) Yeah. I think, I think you're right. (laughs) And so like, yeah, I do. Like, I agree with you that we will probably go to space, but like, it's going to be, it's going to be like, maybe one thing goes over to Mars or something in the state that we are now. Like we, Hmm. I mean, Elon Musk is all gung ho about doing that, but I don't think that any uh, maiden voyage away from Earth is going to be successful until Earth itself figures out how to work as this mono-organism. <laughs> you got it. Yeah. And speaking of free will, what struck me about the idea of the algorithm is that in a, in a computer or in that kind of system – you test, I don't know, every single variable that happens, but the computer, once it learns that the variable doesn't work or it doesn't compute, it doesn't go back and keep testing that. We as humans <laughs> are that literal monkey wrench in the machine. We're like the monkey banging on the control panel. Yeah. Like we, we keep making the same mistakes. We've been making the same mistakes for thousands of years. And I, I guess I'm not exactly sure how to fix that. So many people have asked that question. And my question for you, <laughs> when we create AI that is truly artificial intelligent and can think on its own and can operate independently of us, is that going to so many there's so many science fiction things about mm-hmm. robots taking over the world and wiping us out. Um, what is a robot's definition? of good or evil do they feel that same competitiveness to um out compete other things or is there do robots have free will mm-hmm. yeah and i think that's the like that's the million dollar question in ai and that's why like <laughs> the the smartest people uh, philosophers and you know astrophysicists and everyone who who thinks about this question is kind of skeptical about pulling the trigger on ai like maybe at some point we will reach that or or maybe the trigger's already been pulled and there's nothing we can do to stop you know however many years from now the the one computer that's going to be like oh i know everything and you all suck and you're all going to die uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> who knows and that's one option there's like the 
I forget who had the the thought experiment, but the uh, the paperclip maximizer. Have you heard that? Um, I have not. So, like, if you make an algorithm that just optimizes everything, and one person makes an AI that goes like, make the most paperclips, and so like in one form, it's like yes, gather resources, make paperclips, and then it's going to find the most efficient way of making paperclips. But then it might expand a little bit outside of that and go, well, I can uh, smash protons together to create the like atoms necessary to have hmm. the aluminum to make more paper clips. And so it's going to make like a, a particle collider and then it's going to just absorb all of planet Earth or whatever it might be, whoever might face the consequences of now being turned into paper clips and then before we know it the the whole universe is just a, a mass of paper clips <laughs> gotcha um nice. and that's it's a silly uh thought experiment experiment in the sense that like we you know there needs to be some sort of stopgap, and you can obviously just go like maximize paper clips except you know and any yeah. programmer knows that like if human don't paperclip uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, but like it is something to consider that like if we don't have those stop gaps in place then something like that could happen to where it's like well i don't know you told me to make more paperclips so <laughs> yeah um but and and i think you kind of bring up this notion of like do robots have free will and like would an AI or something like that? And I think that uh, Chris Ryan quotes, uh, Chris Ryan wrote a book about, well, two separate books, one about sex and human sexuality and another about um, like society and how civilization may not be the thing that we think is as good as it is uh, <laughs> yeah. but like he brings up this notion that like every era of technology uh tends to think of itself based on the newest medium mm. uh that is available and so like back when steam engines were the new and cool thing it was like oh yeah the human body is like the steam engine and we like you put things in and it works like this and it does work and stuff like that. And we, we use that because we had like this nice image of a steam engine yeah. and how that worked. And nowadays we like look at the human mind as like, Oh, it's a computer. And you like, you put information in and data comes out and hmm. like it is. And that's kind of how our culture has accepted that it sounds like, or looks like, but it is a bit more complex and, like, I'm sure you know, I guess uh, a question for you is in what ways do you see that even though what you do involves kind of treating the mind as a machine, in what ways do you see the ways that it doesn't necessarily behave like a computer? <laughs> <laughs> I guess going back to that, the mind monkey in the monk banging the control panel <laughs> if when people when we make the change it's it's so simple fundamentally all that really needs to happen for someone to make a change is they've got to be at threshold 
which is when you can congruently say that one, change needs to happen, two, it needs to be me that changes, and three, it needs to happen right now. When you reach that point, as long as you have the right tools to change, I don't know, it happens in an instant. It's why someone can quit smoking or quit drinking overnight when they discover they're about to be a parent or when someone has a a near-death experience and they completely abandon their faith and go to a new one. When they hit that moment, that tipping point, it is such a such a rapid transformation. And working and helping people work with their own minds, I find that we are still... The, the human mind, we talked about how the human mind is always trying to help us. The, the mind, it's doing the best with the tools it's got. And I think that as a machine, it wouldn't... I think that it would optimize for the, the best outcome. But what really happens, our mind says, uh, when we worry about something, it says, don't forget to you know, remember to pay attention to this. And, um, or when we're obsessing about something, uh, it's just running over these same patterns. And I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's that like, it's like a monkey on a laptop (laughs) or it's like a monkey with a laptop with kind of a mind of its own. But I think that the, the human mind is so intricately and messily, uh, connected. Like when I, when I say, I don't know, uh, a dollar bill. That brings up so many different so many different thoughts from uh, capitalism to wealth to security to that time when I was four years old when my uncle folded a dollar bill into a paper shirt and that makes me feel warm because I love my uncle like the, the random connections mm-hmm. that our mind associates they are so nonlinear that that's where my mind goes with that yeah and I think that it's funny how the the progression of technology and and the parameters that we use to kind of observe ourselves and then move forward in the future is sort of like this the snake eating its own tail or that like we're we're kind of designing i say we i'm a musician i don't design anything but uh, <laughs> we're designing ais and algorithms to uh perform in in a neural network and that model itself is based on how the brain and connections are made and so it's like you know it'll it'll create a new node or module or something that it'll then use to apply to new parameters and then each new node that you add kind of exponentially creates a a layer of options that are possible and i think that yeah the the notion that the human mind is is like a machine is in some ways appropriate but it's like it's just like a bad machine (laughs) because kind of like you're saying the the like the memories that we associate with with random things uh, like you would use the example of like someone who's afraid of dogs or something. And it's like, it, I think that nature and uh, natural selection tends toward not necessarily the best option, but just kind of the path of least resistance. The thing yeah. that gets us to live one more day, one more moment. Yep. Uh, <laughs> and so it's like once 
a mind adopts this module of dog scary because this one bad experience we had a long time ago. So mm. now every experience with dog equals uh, avoid and fear mm. and run away. And as of yet, this mind has determined that like I've avoided dogs. I'm still alive. I don't have to get rid of this module. And so there's no need to. And so there's this bad programmer in our head that's just like, nope, still works. Let's just, just keep doing yep. that. <laughs> um, yeah. And so like the. I guess. One question that arises here is like, at what point does a person decide that they do want to make this change in their life that like I am powerless to do anything to keep myself from having this thing ruin my life more. So I need something like a hypnotist to help mm -hmm. me out of this. What leads someone to that point? Oh man, it depends on how deep you want to go. It's the <laughs> question of human consciousness that people have been wondering about for, for centuries. I think when, for most of us, we are living life unconsciously. We are just going about our day. We, uh, I don't know, we fall into these routines and uh, we don't think about what is actually happening to us. Our minds are just running it on autopilot because that's the easy way to do it. As you said, it's a path of least resistance and our minds build up these habits, these uh, routines, these triggers that, um, you know, if this, then that. And it's, it's an easy way to save time and energy because you don't have to waste time every single day wondering, you know, how do I open this door? Like what this strange technology, it, you just remember it, you just do it without thinking about it. But what it comes down to, I think is that, that, I don't know, that unquantifiable piece of humanity that is not like a computer because a computer, at least as far as I know, computers will run itself run that program ad infinitum as long as it's, you know, as long as it works. And if that was the human, the case in the human mind, like we would all just live unconsciously. There would never be any change in that. But there's that one random element, that human emotion that says, I'm not sure if I really like where this is going. And when that person, when that emotion arises, a person has to step back and realize I'm running this unconsciously and it's almost as if part of me is running this for me. Some part of me that I'm not consenting to is like running my life. And it really comes down to that awareness that you are running those habits unconsciously because there's so many people who will live their entire lives like that. There's so many people who will never change because they never have that emotion that rises in them to spur them out of that unconsciousness. Yeah. <laughs> Have you read or heard of uh, The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt? I've heard of it. I have not read it yet. Um, he is, was it, I think it was like evolutionary psychologist or something. It, it was what his job is. And so he he wrote this book called The Righteous Mind and it sort of discusses how the the human mind kind of tends to make emotional decisions or emotional conclusions first and then uses rationality to mm. justify those emotions after the fact. Yeah. And so like 
we might have these modules in our head that are like uh, for whatever reason i'm going to keep using this dog fear uh metaphor <laughs> and run it to the ground but like for whatever reason the like fear of dog thing is an emotional response but then afterwards that mind will go like well like the dog was looking scary or something and i thought i saw like foam in its mouth so it could have rabies or something it, it mm. tries to rationalize anything whatever it might be to yeah. like justify that emotional response and mm. then we like walk around thinking every day that like oh yeah we're perfectly rational beings even though it's like there's this underlying emotional response under everything i guess yeah. how do you communicate with your own subconscious and other people's subconscious because it seems like it's hard to one just like tap into it and another thing to like change it <laughs> yeah that's a really it's a really very interesting way of framing that question <laughs> i would say again going back to that idea of communicating with images and feelings uh the human mind wanting to help us what you know it's it's working in its own interest to help us and so it's it's like a computer that wants to that wants to improve itself but just doesn't know how mm. i guess and when we're using these tools in hypnosis we're essentially giving it other options we're saying you could you can pursue this program that you've been running, but you can also run program A, B, or C. And these will also get you better results. And they might make the person that you're working with happier. Uh, there's another way of looking at it in that every single time we, we access a memory, we change it. We're literally rewriting it at the protein level. I believe the protein is kinase C. And each time you access that memory, you change a little bit of detail on it. And in hypnosis, you can change that intentionally. And simply by changing that memory, you change every single thing that computes out after it. Like in the computer example, if I'm looking at a string of, um, string of computer chips, there's 100 strings, and I, instead of changing like the very last string, very last data chip, I go to chip number six. And I pull that out and I rewrite something and I put it back in. When it runs that program, the entire thing is going to be different. And since our mind is constantly pruning itself and reshaping itself due to our environment, every single data chip along that line is going to change and rewrite itself. And that's why when we're working in hypnosis, it's so effective to go to these foundational memories because every single coping mechanism, every single... Uh, reaction that you had to that foundational memory, it shifts because the foundational memory is no longer there, at least not in that uh, intense emotional state. Yeah. Do you face kind of like pushback from overly scientific people that are like, oh no, hypnosis is is woo and we can't have that in, in our <laughs> discussion or something? <laughs> I do, and then I present them with 125 years of research behind hypnosis. <laughs> uh, there are a lot of hypnotists who go extremely woo and um, who bring in spirituality and like the universe and everything. And it's like, whoa, whoa, hold on. <laughs> um, I go as scientific as possible because 
I need to be able to meet my client where they're at. And I find that if I go with a scientific base and then go down the progression of woo a little bit for a specific client, that's a lot easier than starting out very woo and trying to build up credibility with a very scientific analytical person. And so as a hypnotist, I believe, I believe that all hypnotists should know why the tools they're using work. They should have that understanding of psychology and a little bit of neuroscience to know why this one technique works. I mean, like, yeah, you can use, you can use a car without knowing how it works. But if, if you're trying to fix a car and you're advertising as someone who fixes cars, you should know why changing the oil is good for the car. You should know why replacing the air filter does this or why changing the wiring and putting in new spark plugs, what that does to the engine. I think that knowing that and having that scientific background, it has benefited me in the long run. It took longer to learn and everything, of course, but I have so much more credibility. Like I've talked with pharmacists, I've talked with oncologists and uh, because I rooted myself in that base of science first and foremost, I had such a, such a stronger ground to start from. Yeah, definitely. Cause I think that, uh, especially again, I, I make it a point to discuss, uh, spirituality and religion, uh, not because I myself am religious, but because mm-hmm. it has like being spiritual has been such an important part of my life. And I think it's something that everyone thinks about, but I've, I've probably thought about it too much, uh, <laughs> uh, but like the, I, I do think that like the human, uh, consciousness or like the human cultural experience is, has been so rooted in this spiritual religious experience that it is hard to kind of uncouple that, especially, mm. I mean, I think nowadays, uh, I've had friends sort of talk about the fact that like, they also grew up in church. And then as they became more, uh, secular in their lives, they like, lost a sense of community and they feel really alone in their life because they're like, well, the only place where I like met and talked to friends was at church. And now that I don't have that, like, I guess I'll go to the bar every night and like drink myself poor. Uh, (laughs) And so like the, we've kind of, we're missing a, a a module in a way of our culture that we've, uh, for whatever reason, I keep using this uh, <laughs> computer example, but like that helps us connect a little bit more. And it, it does seem like, I don't know, the the power of idea and the power of symbolism, it is like an interesting tool, but that's because our minds work with it. And I, I think that's something that anyone who is like overly scientific kind of tends to look down upon anything that is more symbolic or metaphorical or even spiritual in the sense that like, no, well, it's not real per se. And so it doesn't like work or it isn't something that we can use. But like, 
again, me being a musician, I use the power of symbol. I use the power of metaphor. I use the mm. power of relating things to other things because our minds do work in that way, whether we like it or not. We can try and be as rational and an analytical as we want to be, but there's still that kind of like butterflies are pretty. And so using that metaphor <laughs> to represent my grandmother or something is like, yeah. I know my grandmother isn't actually a butterfly, but I have this association. It's like you're jumping right to the thing, kind of like mm. we talked about with uh, how trauma kind of jumps to that state. We're using the same thing with metaphor and symbolism. And so it's like, you kind of talked about how like sometimes you will kind of work with the like woo part to work with clients. But like, I guess my rambling thing here is that like, I feel like maybe hard science has become a little too rigid in that it doesn't want to accept something that I don't know, something like placebo or something like symbolism yeah. and metaphor that religion has been so successful at doing all the time. And that mm -hmm. like, oh, this idea of like a higher power or this idea of like the river being alive. And like if we treat the river in such a way, then it will reward us or something like that, that like is something that humans have used for a long time for millions of years for survival even though it doesn't necessarily have like demonstrable effects <laughs> yeah i'm rambling and i don't know where that's going but <laughs> your response <laughs> yeah absolutely i in my life i have found time and time again from whether personal or in business that i need to hold on to my my one end goal very tightly but I need to be flexible and hold on to the path loosely because I, I knew I wanted to be um, anxiety-free, but I, I didn't know the path would have lead me down Buddhism and um, meditation and hypnosis. I wanted to be financially independent. And I, I should say, I still do, but I didn't realize that it would be lead down the path of me being an entrepreneur. I thought I was going to be a, uh, a nine-to-fiver the rest of my life. <laughs> Where I'm going with that is that um, in another roundabout way, I'm connecting this back to Buddhism again, <laughs> but there's this, um, this story about the Buddha and he picks up this leaf one time and he shows it to one of his followers. And he's like, this leaf came off a tree and there are, I don't know, a thousand leaves on that tree. And that's all the, the things that we could talk about that we could teach our followers. But what they really need is this one leaf. And that's all we're going to teach for our entire lives. Because when I'm looking at hypnosis and helping people and efficient systems, like I'm, I'm still working with people. Like I've got to meet them where they're at. For example, like the idea of Esperanto, like a very efficient language that we're all going to speak. Like that's great in concept, but in practice, it doesn't work because people are rigid. We're working with people that are and messing up the system. Like we're, we're still speaking this English language that is incredibly complex and hard to learn, but <laughs> apparently we're forcing the rest of the world to accommodate to us because I don't know, we have the power or something. <laughs> um, where I'm going with that is that we have to, we have to look at our, our goals because my goal is to help this person change. 
my goal is not to show them the exact way to live their life. It's not to say, this is the science that will give you the um, exact purpose that you're looking for. It's not, I'm not like giving every single person like the keto diet and the uh, perfect mindset with hypnosis. It's, it's all about just helping them with that one little step along their path. And I think that that was a huge realization for me that I cannot fix everyone. When I got into hypnosis, I was like, I'm going to be perfect. Like there's <laughs> never going to be another problem in my life. That's, that, it doesn't work that way. And I, I wanted that for other people too. But as long as I'm able to make things okay, as long as I'm able to help them and show them that things are all right, that's a win for me. And I think it comes down to the idea of gratitude and that happiness is low expectations. Hmm. Not that we shouldn't shoot for the moon, but you should be all right. You should be okay with limited resources and just being all right with where you are. Because in the end, the only person that we've got is ourselves. Like we live alone, we die alone. And if you don't actually enjoy being with this twisted, messed up computer that you got in your skull, it's going to be a long ride. Yeah. <laughs> do people tell you what their goals are or do you kind of figure out what the goal should be? I guess, how do you determine that? <laughs> that really depends. Sometimes people, uh, they've, they've got it and then we break into it and we're like, yeah, that, that really is the goal that you want. But so many times people come in with an issue and the issue is not the issue. They come in with a fear of cotton candy. And like the underlying issue is that this one time their Aunt Marge, who has a hair like cotton candy, I don't know, fluffiness or something, she she spoke to them really rudely and it scarred them or something. I think that uh, sometimes in very rare cases, I know, I, I should say, I believe I know what is better for the client than they do. And so I can attempt to work them towards that solution. But in the end, it's always what the client wants because that's what their unconscious mind has already agreed with. In the example of losing weight, I know some very efficient systems at helping people lose weight, but some people come in and they're like, I want you to make me completely averse to chocolate. And every time I see it, I want to want to barf. And I'm like, that, that's a terrible idea. But <laughs> every time I try to explain them like, no, I want to barf every time I see chocolate. And I say, I guess if that's the solution you want, and that's going to make you happy. Like that is the, that is what that's, that's the tool you're giving me. And that's the tool I've got to use. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It, it does seem hard because, uh, and I've talked to other people that work in, in fields like you do or, uh, life coaches and stuff like that, that it's, it does seem to be incredibly difficult to, uh, I mean, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make a drink yeah. sort of thing is that like, you know, or at least you believe very strongly that like, yeah. this is not where you want to be drinking water from horse. If I yeah. am continuing <laughs> this metaphor, but like, <laughs> I guess how, how do you like nudge people or maybe do they come back to you over time and realize like, it sucks having to like try to barf every time that I see chocolate. Can you like get this out of my head now? <laughs> Depends. I mean, if someone is truly adamant, like that example, 
yeah, I would, I would give them a solution and then I don't know, mark it on my calendar. Like they'll be back, but, (laughs) um, nudging them, people really want to feel in control. They want to feel they have autonomy. And so whenever I try to build them towards that solution, it is, as you say, a nudge. And it, my goal is to essentially make them have the idea that I want and then make them believe that they thought it up. Mm-hmm. So I, I give them plenty of examples and metaphors of different clients that I've worked with that have had this exact same problem. And then part of their mind is like, oh, that sounds really nice. Like, I kind of want that too. Maybe I should go with that solution. And then they decide, you know what, this solution like that we've been talking about, I think I want that. And I'm like, oh, that's really nice. But I don't know. It's it's very difficult. And again, got to work with the client and just be flexible. Everyone's on different paths in their life. As, as you said, with the example of life coaches wanting to, to fix people, essentially. I had that same issue. Like I want to fix people because I've got these tools, but people don't want you to fix them unless they come to you. They don't want you to go to their life and just resolve everything. I had some conflicts with friends and family when I first started out with hypnosis, like you should try this. And they're like, I don't, I don't care. I just want to live my life. <laughs> and it's, it's all about just being open and, and saying like, if you want to change, I am here. I have the tools. I can help you. And if, or when you want to change, we can do it. Yeah. A lot of the, the nudging stuff that you mentioned actually reminded me a lot of magic and like, not like magic, magic, but like stage magic. And uh, I don't do magic, but I know enough about it to know that it's like similar to kind of hypnosis and suggestion is that that is a lot of what magic is, is like the human mind is kind of simple in some areas and that you, you can just like trick them into being like this is exactly what you're seeing and i know what i want you to see so have you explored magic and redirection and all that (laughs) i personally have not it's been on my i I don't want to say bucket list but on my long-term goals there are so many stage hypnotists who are also professional magicians or at least have a very strong background in it um and at first I thought that it was just because like they're two kind of out there, uh, out there techniques. But now as I explore it, you're absolutely right. Like hypnosis, just as much as magic is about directing attention, um, to take it to another area of hypnosis, NLP, which is like, it's like an offshoot of hypnosis. That is all about reframing like reframing something negative into the positive or reframing looking at one aspect of the problem and looking at a different aspect of the problem. These things, they've got such, such through lines. And um, yeah, magic is not something that I'm pursuing yet, but I, I kind of, I don't know, interested in the future, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> completely unrelated to where this conversation has gone. But like you told me about like hiking and skiing and stuff like that. Uh, I guess, how did you get into that and like why and what is fun and interesting about it? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I grew up in Wisconsin and I, I was a very fat kid. Uh, (laughs) No other way to say it. I, uh, I emotionally ate because I had a lot of issues and that was the only resources that I had to deal with that. And when I started figuring out my own health and then figuring out the, 
the reasons I overate and struggled with all those things, I first just tried to exercise it out. And of course, you can't exercise out-exercise a crappy diet, but I tried. And so that led me to finding things I really enjoyed, like hiking. I, I enjoy nature. And I also got a really great workout going up to this top of this mountain. And then when you're at the top, you have all the endorphins and you're seeing this beautiful view. Epic. Um, <laughs> I think I... I think the outdoor adventures were such a crossroads in my life because I did not climb my first mountain until I dropped out of college and moved across the country to essentially my own life. It was that moment I started taking control rather than letting other people call the shots. And so it was not only the endorphin high of climbing a mountain and being in nature, it was the autonomy of knowing that I chose to climb this mountain. And not only that, I did it by myself, my own two feet. And it was the, also the, um, the thrill of the possibility. Like I was just essentially starting my life. And since then, I've just, I don't know, I don't, I've just been chasing that, that feeling. And I get it every single time I go hiking or skiing. And I don't know if I, I again, I don't know if I was wired that way or if I was, it was just a coincidence in my environment that then taught my brain, like, this is what you like. And I'm like, okay, but <laughs> I don't know, whatever it is, it's just become a very integral part of my life. Yeah. Um, are you, I guess, for lack of a better term, like adrenaline junkie, or have you not like breached that part of the, the exercise culture? <laughs> I don't think I'm an adrenaline junkie. I think that for a while, I was going that route. I was like, I want to climb the biggest mountains. And then I realized I was climbing this mountain and I was miserable. Mm. Or I was running down or I was going down my 15th ski run of the day and I was sore and I didn't want to be there. And I realized that's not freedom for me. It might be freedom for someone else because they're getting those endorphins and that adrenaline. But when I'm pushing myself past my limits too far and I'm exhausting myself, then it, I'm doing myself damage. And that that was a big part of my journey of realizing that. Like I I wanted to be fit and I wanted to have these adrenaline and endorphin highs, but I also wanted to take care of myself because I want to hopefully be around for, I don't know, 50 years or something and live a decent life. Yeah, definitely. And I I know that pretty well too. While I haven't been able to go outside as much uh because of well weather now but like the covid is that like mm -hmm. i i do really enjoy like uh running on the elliptical for like long distances and stuff like that and it's like or high speed for a short time and like that reward of like getting to another point or or whenever you maybe you're like halfway and you're just like, I don't know if I could make it. And then you like do the other half and it's like, wow, I did yeah. that. <laughs> like that's, yeah. um, I don't know. Like that's, that is a, a huge motivator for me. And, uh, I've yet to reach the point to where it's like, I need to stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but like the other part is that like, I, I have like a messed up knee and so I can't go like yeah. I can't 
run physically, which is why I do the elliptical, but like, (laughs) um, I guess, how do you find those limits? (laughs) Oh, the real question that I, I, I want or that I, that I aim for is how do I find those limits and do it without blowing myself up or, I don't know, tearing a knee or something like that. (laughs) Um, because your body will will show you those limits mm-hmm. uh, as long as you push yourself to that limit. Like, uh, I, I moved to Maine to to conquer a fear of heights, and I moved to there to to work on a high ropes course, and that it worked. Like, I I pretty much did that, and now I'm rock climbing. And uh, there come there came a point in my rock climbing career where I'm I'm like hanging essentially upside down, like clinging for dear life, essentially off of this uh, plastic rock gym hold and um my mind was like this isn't fun anymore like mm-hmm. I, i'm pursuing someone else's else's goal like and i think that finding our limits it, it's it, it, it that's probably the best case scenario when you realize that it's no longer fun and you choose to stop doing it the other case scenario is when let's say you're a long distance marathon runner and you blow a knee at like I don't know. I don't know what the age range is at, but out of 35 or something. And that might be a career ending thing. Like if that is your limit, but you've still got further that you want to go, that is heartbreaking. And I see that time and time again in the adventure community. My goal is to, to push myself as far as I can while still preserving my body and my mental health for the long run. Yeah, definitely. How has the internet uh, I guess affected how you, or I guess it seems like the internet was integral to how you got into hypnosis and all of this, I guess what, what about the internet sort of made this happen? (laughs) Yeah. The, the free dissemination of information because I was broke and (laughs) I wanted a better life. And if my only option was to go to a university and pay someone to teach me things that might or might not make me happy like that that it, i'm probably not going to find the one correct path for me <laughs> but if i've got all this information that i can pick and choose and kind of experiment with without all that risk of financial loss i was able to explore so many things and when i talk with people about finding their meaning there's often that exploration phase. Like you try a bunch of different things from whitewater rafting to basket weaving to, I don't know, painting like in the Sistine Chapel or something, whatever it is. And you're like, I've tried all these things and none of them really fit. And they're like, I've just wasted all this time. But you've got to realize that your mind was sorting out different options. Yeah. And that is critical. Your mind has sorted out what it doesn't want so that it can focus on what it does. And the internet, while it is, while it can be a negative thing for me, it it gave me freedom because I trained with a guy who was halfway across the, the continent from me. And uh, without the internet, I wouldn't have been able to buy a ticket and fly to work with him in person. I wouldn't be able to build the business that I have today. And I've built my business completely online so that I can travel and have uh, this flexibility to pursue my own adventure. I think I think the adventure, or I should say the internet does have a downsides for my life, but I think without a doubt, it is definitely a positive in my own life. Yeah. Um, 
I guess, last point of discussion. What's something that you've been listening to, reading, watching, whatever of those or all of those that you've been really into that you want other people to know about? Two things come to mind. I haven't been reading a lot of fiction lately. I've been reading more nonfiction. Um, If someone wants to learn how to change their own mind and how to essentially get the operating system or manual of their own mind, check out NLP. If you've ever heard of Tony Robbins, he is probably the most famous NLP practitioner in the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, NLP is essentially hypnosis. It's an offshoot of it, but it's very simple to do and it's very simple to learn. Um, Anything, anything on NLP would be a great resource for anyone interested in hypnosis or even just managing their own mind. And looking at fiction, I, uh, the one thought that came up was my favorite book of all time, The Poisonwood Bible. And it's about a, a missionary who takes his wife and four daughters to Africa, to the Congo, right around the time of the revolution. And it talks about, about faith and about uh, human life. And it is such a philosophical book while still breaking it down into the narratives of the child and the mother and all these different viewpoints on, on life. If, if someone wants a book that will blow their mind and still break their heart, like in the best way, that's, that's the one I recommend. The Poisonwood Bible by Barbara Kingsolver. Yeah. Uh, actually you just like mentioned, or I guess talking about like changing your mind and stuff like that reminded me of a book called how to change your mind, which is about psychedelics. And I'm surprised at myself that I didn't ask about psychedelics. Do you have an experience (laughs) with psychedelics? Has your path along this kind of spiritual journey taken you into exploring psychedelics? I personally have not. I know a lot of hypnotists, or I should say a lot, some very famous hypnotists um, have explored that very heavily. Um, if someone, if you're curious or anyone is curious about the link between psychedelics and hypnosis, I think Melissa Tears, she's a hypnotist out of New York City, I think she's got some fantastic research on it. Yeah, because yeah, I, I personally haven't done any psychedelics but like i know that the meditation and hypnosis and spirituality and all of these things are kind of in concentric circles surrounding each other and so uh sometimes they do interlink um and i guess for for my sake because uh people listen to this podcast for me sometimes uh stuff that i've been listening to um is this podcast called dissect um, uh-huh. which is um, breaking down different artistic works from, I mean, so far it's all been black artists, uh, but like, so the first season of Dissect was, uh, it's a podcast, by the way, I don't know if I said that, <laughs> but <laughs> the first season of Dissect was over To Pimp a Butterfly by Kendrick Lamar. Um, and at first I was just listening to seasons of albums that I knew and so I was like, cool, I love Kendrick Lamar, I'll listen to that. And then like the most recent uh, season was Because the Internet by Childish Gambino. And I was like, ooh, cool, like I've been meaning to like learn about it because I knew there was something much deeper with this album. Uh, but then I just went on to like listen to seasons over albums and artists that like I don't know very well. And that's almost been more intriguing because it's like, wow, I've been missing out on this artist (laughs) that like 
I could have been enjoying this whole time. And now I like know this album or this artist really well. And that's yeah. been a really cool experience. And so I highly recommend the dissect podcast. Uh, Cole Kushna yeah. does, uh, and he has a team over time, but like they do a lot of good work and research stuff uh, really well and get really deep into stuff. And I only hope that people would do that with my music at some point eventually. Cause yeah, uh, that would be a big honor and because uh, it's like we all put a lot of work into our artistic medium and stuff like that. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> Doug, thank you so much for doing this with me. Where can we find you and your things? Absolutely. Uh, my main website is anywherehypnosis.com. Uh, if someone wants to learn more about hypnosis or test drive it for free, I've got some free resources on my Instagram. That is at making your meaning. And I call it that because I run the making meaning podcast. Uh, they can find the Making Meaning podcast by searching for that on any of the, the major uh, the apps, you know, Apple and Stitcher and stuff, or by going to anywherehypnosis.com slash podcast. Awesome. Thank you so much. I'm Santiago Ramones. And I'm Doug Sands. You can find everything that I do on my website, SantiagoRamones.com. I make music. Bloom is available now, streaming everywhere. Put it on in the background or show it to your friends so you can all enjoy it together. You can also buy it on Bandcamp and get bonus content so you can sit alone in the dark with your headphones on and listen to the album in its entirety while reading and looking at the bonus content. I also make music with PowerCycle, an experimental electronic trio. Our first completely improvised album, Too Many Damn Cables, is streaming everywhere. To support this podcast, leave reviews, comments, tell your friends about it, and buy my music, because by supporting me, you're supporting the podcast. I always end the podcast with my three things. They shape my life philosophy. Those three things are, love never fails, it's going to be okay, I might be wrong, 